We're not talking about uh, a voluntary reduction in our existing living standards. We're talking about a transformation of our lives into forms of care and provisioning which allow far more people to have a far better life. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Hi everyone, thanks so much for coming. My name is Blanche Verley. I'm a researcher at the Sydney Environment Institute. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for the PhD seminar, Unraveling the Capitalist State, Crisis and Opportunity, presented by the Sydney Environment Institute. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I am calling in from the stolen and unceded country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and also that the University of Sydney is also situated on Gadigal country. Thanks also to the Sydney Environment Institute for hosting this event. SEI is a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. It brings together key thinkers from the university and beyond to address critical environmental challenges. Thanks also specifically to Evie Wright, who's behind the scenes doing all our tech and is our uh, magical tech wizard that makes all our lives easier. Uh, This afternoon, Anna Sturman will draw upon her PhD thesis, which she's recently submitted to explore the capitalist state as a key terrain of inquiry for environmental and social justice movements. This analysis draws upon both the contemporary revival of state theory scholarship and on-the-ground responses from movements navigating rolling crises. Anna Sturman is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Economy at the University of Sydney and also an SEI doctoral fellow. Her research interests include the political economy of climate change, the role of agriculture in programmatic socio-ecological transformations, materialist, eco-feminist approaches to economics and theories of the state. Anna is also an all-around legend who's helped keep me sane and happy since I moved to Sydney, so I thank her immensely for that, and I'm really thrilled to have the privilege of chairing this event. Anna submitted her PhD literally days before our Sydney lockdown, so once you take into account the big sleep she had to have after submitting, she's really had no opportunity to party or celebrate. Um, I know there's not that much joy around right now, so if you feel like um, turning your camera on and giving her a wave, a smile, or a little bit of a, a dance party, I'm sure she will appreciate all, um, all our celebratory gestures. In a moment, I'll hand over to Anna, um, and at the end of Anna's presentation, we'll have time for some questions, uh, and when we get there, I'll invite you either to use the chat Uh, or to uh, use the raise hand function and then we'll manage questions that way. In the meantime, if you can keep yourself muted, that would be fabulous. And Anna, I will now hand over to you. Thank you, Blanche. Um, I really enjoyed watching you work through my research interests. That's fun to hear other people say, so thank you. Uh, Hello to everyone. Um, I will also begin by acknowledging that I'm beaming into you today from the land of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation, uh, on land that was never ceded and upon which settler colonial states claim to exert ultimate authority still. Um, And I pay my respects to traditional custodians, elders past, present and emerging. And I acknowledge that discussing the state today is a topic which immediately evokes 
a lot of really painful thoughts, um, nightmares of ongoing violent disposition of First Nations people, and I take that really seriously. I am, however, discussing the state here because it is an unavoidable obstacle to any emancipatory project, and I'm assuming here that most people will be with me in wanting uh, a better world, <laughs> the one we inhabit, and the ones that we're potentially, if not probably, careening towards. So, it's a foundational understanding to the lines of reasoning which I'm going to explore here with you today that we have to take very seriously a theorization of the state that can help us to claim better worlds and address historic and ongoing wrongs as we do so. In order to build this theorization, I will make clear to you the orientation of my work, the traditions it draws upon and is situated within, uh, and the understanding of capitalism it attempts to navigate. <laughs> Subheading, <laughs> an historical materialist approach to crisis. So, <laughs> my work is historical materialist. I rely upon three broadly definable areas of thinking within that tradition, uh, which are eco-socialist theory, materialist eco-feminism, and neo-Marxist state theory, all, of course, with an internationalist perspective. And they sound very jargony, but I'm going to walk us through them. Or the good parts of them. <laughs> They're relevant. Um, through these traditions, I theorize how crisis tendencies are constituted in capitalism and how these crises may provide opportunities for people to affect change. For context, my PhD thesis examined New Zealand's climate change policy in light of the biogenic methane produced as a result of an historic reliance on agricultural exports. So I considered the historical development of capitalist agriculture in New Zealand as part of the country's polit political economy as a whole, and that itself within global capitalism, uh, and how the ecological crises that are endemic to that form of production are indivisible from the social and economic crises wracking New Zealand and many other places generally today. So the housing crisis, crises of higher education and care, poverty, lack of public investment, and so on. Um, and I focus on the level of the state as an epicenter of crisis management in the global political economy. Um, I'm going to gesture a lot. Hopefully my internet won't get overwhelmed and cut out, but I can't talk about the stuff without it, so apologies. Um, so I'll walk through the structure of this brief talk. I'll walk through my conceptualization of crisis, set that up, and then what this might mean for environmental and social justice movements and the sorts of movements that we might properly consider environmental. And then following this, I'll talk about the ways the current liberal theorization and associated common sense view of the state contributes to a sense of helplessness and the prolonging and deepening of crises. This is when the shots are going to be fired. Uh, and then I turn to consider how an historical materialist theory of the state can enrich our projects to achieve emancipatory ends. And from here, I'll explore how to apply that theory and then conclude with some brief thoughts on the dangers of engaging and not engaging the state as a terrain of struggle. Okay. So <laughs> we all know we live in a time of undeniable widespread deep crisis. <sighs> deep breaths. 
The traditional or orthodox theorization of crisis and capitalism emerges from that primary contradiction between capital and labor. Stay with me, non-historical materialists. We'll get through this real quick. That primary contradiction between capital and labor. Uh, individual capitals exist in an anarchic brotherhood where they must constantly lower the costs of production to maximize their profits or the surplus value that they're going to obtain once labor is paid, once rent is paid, and so on. Labour, in turn, workers fight against this tendency to force down wages, which are the mechanism through which workers might access food or shelter or the other things that they need to live, that we need to live. This relentless fight between the imperative to maximise profit in order to survive as a business in capitalism and between people who need enough wages to live is the motive force of capital as a social relation. However, uh, and this is where my research kicks in, this contradiction can be considered as just one manifestation of the broader web of contradictions, capital, and genders. So expanding beyond the traditional or this first primary contradiction I just set out, we can see emergent second contradictions. And a wonderful scholar called James O'Connor theorized these as contradictions emerging from capital's reliance on conditions of production. So these are uh, external nature or non-human nature, labor power or people, and communal conditions of production. Things like the built environment, uh, information commons, things like social cooperation. These are sort of naturalized realms where free reproduction of what capital needs to operate exist. And they are presented as free gifts commonly, uh, the free gifts of nature, a mother's love, and so on. And so here the true costs of production are systematically pushed. And it's here that we can see many of the environmental and social justice struggles emerging, even if they do not necessarily tie their particular struggles to this generalized fight against capital's expansion. So the climate crisis is the end result of the complete overloading of the atmospheric commons, or maybe like the ultimate non-human nature, or external nature condition of production, by industry driven by the systematic compulsion to maximize profits and displace effects. Equally, we could say the crises of wage stagnation, insecure housing, food insecurity, and so on and so on, are all natural crises and that humans are a part of nature, and these are crises happening to us. The economic, ecological, and social crises we face are the effects of capitalism's irascible contradictions. And these contradictions, you know, compounding each other, magnifying each other, intersecting each other, and so on. If we think about the political economy in this expanded sense, then we can think about new social movements or environmental, feminist, and other social justice movements as emerging in response to the expansion of capital through increased appropriation and exploitation or the seizure of things for free and the use of the wage relation to create value. And so that's how we can start thinking about these movements potentially uh, as struggles over the conditions of production and as components of labor struggles and equally it, it brings new depth and breadth to what we might consider as a labor struggle. A labor struggle. Okay, and then finally for this bit, in the classic theory that discusses this approach, so in classic eco-socialist and some materialist eco-feminist theory, the state, we get to the state, the state is the actor that works uh, in the collective interests of everyone to ensure the conditions of production are not destroyed by this race to the bottom. 
So I reject this autonomous state character that supposedly swoops in to save people in favor of a more nuanced and useful, I hope, theorization. But first I'm going to quickly set out why, uh, or explore one reason why the liberal theory of the state is inadequate. Um, and I do this because it does underpin a lot of work on environmental and social justice struggles today. So very, very briefly, the point I'm going to get at, the reason I set aside liberal state theory, uh, is the presumed separation or the enforced implicit separation of the political and the economic that it relies on. So the liberal theory of the state sees it as an ahistorical black box, an instrument to be used by whomever manages to win an electoral contest. <laughs> Which is not easy. I'm not saying it's easy to win an electoral contest. But there are differences of opinion over how active the state should be, but it's accepted as autonomous from something called the economy, which must be protected at all costs. And the state can be good or bad, depending on whether the people holding its reins are good or bad. Hand in hand with this sort of acceptance of a free-floating political sphere comes broad rejection of discussions or attempts or thoughts about democracy in the economic sphere, Things like workers' democracy, attempts to unionize, and so on. Democracy doesn't happen there. So a lot of your time is devoted to discussing electoral strategies, voting patterns, and the influences of different political personalities. Um, and there's definitely utility in a deep grasp of politics, but following my forebears in historical materialist thought, I'd situate or conceptualize politics a little bit differently than this sort of shallow grasp of it. So the contradictions which arise, the contradictions I just discussed, which arise in our economies are managed in part through this presentation of the political and the economic as formally separate spheres. An implicit acceptance of this leads to a common misunderstanding of how power works in capitalist societies. And it's at the root of a great deal of confusion, I think. Uh, for our contemporaries working in the liberal tradition who can't fathom why politicians don't do the right thing in a lot of situations uh, and, you know, put, put an end to the crises that we're facing. And in particular, on this, I would point to the ongoing commentary about uh, the New South Wales Premier and the COVID response. Um, and in particular, from my fellow New Zealanders... <laughs> who have a lot to say about it, um, and I would just like to respond with, we need to think about the material conditions and the material power that is in place that might create those responses as opposed to Gladys just being an awful person, on which I have no comment. Um, so there may be times where the threat of electoral defeat may sway a politician or political party, but these sorts of slow waves of power accretion and so on a talismanic at best, I'd suggest, and reflect broader processes of contestation and so on far beyond the state. To force a change which would enrage those currently wielding material power, you're probably going to need material power, and I'll come back to that in a bit. So, historical materialist state theory. Let's take a brief look at that, slightly more engaged look at that. Historical materialist theory seeks to look beyond the surface form of appearance to grapple with the real imperatives, forces, and relations which structure our societies and our lives. 
In our capitalist liberal democracies, the state is a set of social relations which enforces the rules of the economic game, creates and upholds the system of private property. It also does this for labor by mediating the formal right to equality through contracting labor to capital. The legal system and the legally sanctioned use of violence and the forms of police and the military enforce these frameworks. And beyond the stabilization of production and exchange, the state can organize additional redistribution of the things people need to live. So returning again to that foundational sort of crisis theory, because the imperative to accumulate surplus value or profit impels forcing down the costs of production, including wages, where the state is forced to by agitation or the exertion of material power from social forces or the working class, it is forced to like pick up the slack and subsidize the costs of reproducing those things, of reproducing labor power. So think of um, collectivized healthcare, think of public education, think of those things. And this also occurs with non-human nature. Capital is systematically impelled to lower the cost of production. The costs of reproducing uh, non-human nature are, are like one of the easiest things for capital to throw away. And the state is called upon selectively, according to exertion again of material power, to protect nature. So you can see the dilemma that arises. Rather than being driven solely by greed or by that phantom individualism, capital is a relation that works to exploit humans and appropriate or take for free the reproductive energies of humans outside the former labor relationship and also the free energies of non-human nature in order to maintain profitable production. And the state is a framework of power through which large chunks of the cost of production can be redirected. And I have as an aside here, <laughs> and I'll say it, this is even worse than it sounds because the costs of reproducing humans or labor, how you think about it, and non-human nature tend to be drawn in large part from a tax base which is increasingly regressive. So the poorest people are subsidizing the throttling of people and the rest of nature by capital. Here, I do want to take a moment to consider the nature of the state a little more closely. Because it's not a, unit a unitary, autonomous actor that swoops in to save a unitary, autonomous capital as required. Rather, the state is best considered as an internally contradictory and contingent set of social relations. The sum of which is the material condensate of the balance of class struggle over that rate and degree of exploitation and appropriation in society. So, <laughs> with an expanded view of the economy to include the free gifts, the conditions of production, which production quite literally relies upon, we also expand our view of the state. It's not only a material condensate of the balance of class struggle in a limited productive economy sense. It's literally the crystallization of struggle over the conditions of production over everything, including labor power and wage labor. And of course, our struggles are informed by our understandings of them, including what we can dream to fight for, what we can dream of to fight for, um, or how totally, you know, capitalist realism, capitalist horizons can shut a possibility. So a key piece of this puzzle to bear in mind is that the ongoing re-articulating of the state according to this balance of struggle 
inflected by how we understand the struggle, makes some future actions and paths appear more or less possible to us. They strategically inflect the state form. So we have to reckon with where we are right now, which is 40 years, give or take, into a cult of personal responsibility and distrust of the state so deep that the very idea of making the case for forms of collective responsibility for social and ecological reproduction can appear laughable. And yet here we are. Here we are. So this jargon adds up to the state is a balancing act of compromises within and stabilizing the political economy over how much capital gets for free and how much the rest of us get to bear. It's internally contradictory because there are multitudes of actors and imperatives in play at any one time, and these necessarily create contradictions within the state form itself. The state is not a neutral playing field. Its very form and functions correspond to the patterns of class struggle which structure our capitalist societies. And after that massive brain dump of theory, I'm going to um, take a concrete example and talk through it to make this a little bit more comprehensible. So the example I'm going to take is drawn from my thesis, um, and it is the crises and the social forces navigating them that led to the uh, destruction of the welfare state in New Zealand in the 1980s. But I'd note, um, this happened in all the core capitalist countries, so you'll, you'll see parallels. So, embedded in the form of the capitalist welfare state in New Zealand were massive compromises over collective social reproduction of the labor force. So um, the public health and education and so on I mentioned before. And this was still referred to um, either affectionately or with deep distaste as cradle to grave welfare, the cradle to grave welfare state. Um, so the compromises embedded in the state were won through huge fights in the late 19th and early early 20th century. And these were connected to broader internationalist struggles as well. But in New Zealand on the ground, it was between New Zealand's farming class, small farming class exporters, and organised labour. Um, New Zealand is a small um, dependent economy. It doesn't attract a lot of investment capital because of its size um, and the access to cheap labour everywhere else in the world, etc. Uh, so the cheapest and the easiest way to allow production and consumption to boom at the time was through a huge expansion of the welfare state. Uh, and it's worth noting the programs of this were paid for in large part by the working class itself in a virtuous cycle as this got going. So all of this was predicated on ongoing expansion of capitalist farming, which, as we know, destroys the soil it relies upon due to the requirements for ongoing growth and production driven by, um, driven by uh, production for export. So the state continued to expand in that way too, to facilitate the appropriation of more land to feed this requirement, um, taking land from uh, the indigenous Māori people, in truly just like shocking display. Uh, also more fertilizer as the soils began to fall fallow, more and more and more direct subsidization, all sorts of research and development programs, things to try and keep this industry going. 
And so we end up with this massive state apparatus embodying a huge number of internally contradictory compromises. So think um, the cost of labor is going to have to go down at some point to restore profits, but we've got a guarantee of full employment and central bank legislation. And then that there's, there's all sorts of things that get in the way. Um, and notably, like just taking on close to the full cost of replenishing the soil and restoring the lands so that it could be used, that alone was enough to, um, to put the state in a really overwhelmed position, making promises to far too many people. So capital is dynamic, it can't sit still, it has to expand or contract, and the state could stabilise compromises over the degree of expansion for a time. But compromises are temporary. They have to move one way or the other. And in New Zealand, the welfare state was dismantled by a coalition including new social movements, such as environmental justice movements, who wanted more accountability from the state rather than a big bureaucratic apparatus. Finance capital and agricultural capital also really wanted the state to uh, change uh, so that they could accumulate more freely. So the state that did come, the state that we still have an iteration of today, was one that still had that absolute division between the economic and the political in it, but now with a much reduced accepted role for the state and increased consultation processes. Um, so throwing formally democratic functions such as the setting of monetary policy, that's now gone. That's with technocrats. Uh, we've got a whole lot of unelected experts. We've got a whole lot of expert committees, decision-making bodies, and importantly, uh, with the new neoliberal capitalist state, we have user pays access to all of that formally collectivized social reproduction. So a crisis brought on by the inability to hold capital in place combined with a deep dissatisfaction with this, like these internally contradictory compromises embedded in the state. And there was a really successful positioning of the state as the prime mover, as the thing that caused the problem, rather than the state as an internally contradictory collection of crisis symptoms. Um, so the state was massively re-articulated and the ensuing devastation has been extensively discussed elsewhere, so I won't go into it any further here. So what do I mean when I say at this point in time, concrete engagement with the state? Uh, well, <laughs> The good news, if you will, is that we live in a time of acute crisis, um, massive crisis. So the state is generally, um, it's back on the menu, it's back on the menu, boys. Um, the bad news is that a lot of people on what we could broadly call the left seem to be falling back on nationalistic or nation-building ideas of the state, which are deeply unhistorical and deeply divorced from the kind of internationalism and solidarity with other countries, people in other countries, and the peripheral countries that progressive action requires. So I'll draw again here on my thesis with an example to try and demonstrate how something which might seem environmentally friendly on its face is anything but once you contextualize it among the full span of costs it's going to raise. So at the moment, agriculture already discussed, agriculture in New Zealand is in deep crisis. The conditions of production that it relies upon are sputtering. The waterways are absolutely unmentionable. 
There is no technological fix yet available to prevent the amount of biogenic methane that cows are producing. The massive debts that farmers have had to take on to run these operations are absolutely unmanageable, uh, and there's a massive mental health crisis, which is, you know, understandable. And then the world is increasingly dubious about the general environmental impacts of meat and dairy farming. So crisis tendencies. But New Zealand's economy is built around the strength of this export industry. And there isn't a massive push to replace it with anything from a group with a material basis in power. So some electoral parties have started floating plans to fund a transition to full uh, organic practices for New Zealand's agricultural sector, creating a high value economy, uh, trading almost, um, what am I trying to say? not uniquely, trading in niche green products. So public money is going in the plans to be used to subsidise this and vast numbers of New Zealanders will be trained or retrained in the labour-intensive practices of organic farming because you need people to do organic farming. Machines don't work as well. So we'll bring in labour forces from other countries and pay them nothing and provide them with no labour protections and we'll train up a new technocratic elite who are going to oversee everything and then probably be exported to other countries to tell them how to do it too. So uh, the success of the strategy also relies currently on the expansion of existing quite dirty farming being put onto other uh, countries agricultural sectors into fresh forms of non-human nature, if you will. So the main dairy exporter in New Zealand, Fonterra, uh, has brought up various ventures over time uh, in Latin America and Asia and has been outsourcing mass production to those sites for some time. So we're able to stabilise like green production in New Zealand and reap the benefits of it while pushing uh, all the most dirty stuff across the borders, but keeping the flow of profit coming to people in New Zealand. So the public discussion over the terms of this just transition has never really taken into account, firstly, the fact that the nature of the production relies upon was stolen or taken, um, or that the commonwealth of New Zealand has been funneled towards that sector for generations through direct subsidies, monetary policies, labour laws, public research and development, all sorts of things. The social and ecological costs of that form of production have never really been counted. And so don't enter our conversations about how further changes to it might reinforce the dynamics that already exist. Uh, similarly, the possibility of nationalising this industry is never for a second contemplated, despite it representing this clear funnelling of, of public value to private interests. Um, yeah, and the suggested solution being a massive further funneling of labour into the industry and the redirection of our education system to support it too. So what I'm saying is, a concrete engagement with the state has to figure out how the power of the state is being implicated in accumulation strategies like this, and then force a confrontation with the logics which implicitly support those strategies. A concrete engagement with the state has to challenge the common sense or hegemonic ideas about what the state is and how it might be used strategically. If we take seriously the expansive view of the productive economy and the full range of struggles presently underway to push the capital relation back across the conditions of production, 
then incorporating an analysis of how the state form constrains and enables certain tactics within and beyond the state itself is a vital piece of the puzzle we have to look at, we have to collectively solve. At the most elementary level, beyond grand plans and big theoretical claims and so on, the form and functions of the state literally set the conditions which enable or constrain grassroots movements and organisations to exist. The settings in the state form control the amount of oxygen in the room. Will there be room to breathe and expand and develop the forms of solidarity and so on that we need to actually protect ourselves? Or will there be so little oxygen for building these movements that nascent efforts suffocate under the weight of too much or too little work and inadequate collective provision of the things we need to survive? This is an argument not so much for the state or the pieces of the state as a direct instrument of change, but it is an argument for considering the state as a vital membrane within a broader programmatic strategy for socio-ecological transformation. Because it certainly has not, and it will not, be abandoned as a weapon by the right. And so we come to it. <laughs> Approaching the state in this way means engaging the hard work of building material power in order to force and or seize crises and demand their resolution in forms more favourable to us, not capital. Any movements grounded in material power, the power to remove labour or otherwise halt the flow of capital through disruption of production and key channels of exchange, will be a lot of work to build. A lot of work. And I'm not suggesting for a second that it will be easy. And here I have a, a small personal note. I know from conversations with friends and from many people of my generation from similar backgrounds, which is extremely privileged in the context of the world, um, even if, you know, we have massive personal debt and so on and so forth. We live, we've grown up in a world where no real public spaces exist and they're just becoming more scarce. So the idea of organising in the way that I'm suggesting appears completely at odds with the scale of the problems that we're facing and calls on us to display attributes or to perform in ways we never have before. So it's a big undertaking, but it's the only way. We're trying to do this at the moment in conditions that are incredibly inhospitable with the COVID pandemic um, and how that's further atomized us. But it's also showing us why we need to turn to this form of solidarity. So by tying concerns about climate change to the need for massive investment in our public infrastructure, to the need for a turn to care work, sustainable agriculture, instead of extractive export-driven industry, we can and we must find ways to align our interests and seek better collective provisioning, in part through navigating the state. This, rather than forcing more and more of the contradictions we face into the body of the state in an attempt to return to a bygone welfare era, leading inevitably to the kind of boiling point of contradictions which eventually led to, again, the neoliberal state, we have to transform the state as part of a broader transformation and to open up more spaces for devolved democratic decision-making. We need a return of power which can be flexed across the gamut of social relations. One that links environmental movements to labour movements, to indigenous sovereignty movements, other social justice movements, through an understanding of humans as part of nature and the democratically determined production of ourselves and the rest of nature as a precondition of a safe planet, a safe workplace and a safe home. 
And I have a note here, this is not a call for citizens' assemblies or other alternatives to representative representational democracy, which leave the division between economic and political undisturbed. It's pretty simple. Does the logic, does the use of the state being envisaged attempt to disturb the underlying social relations of the, in the political economy or not? Because without doing so, or strategically working in that direction, we merely lock in the destructive frameworks we're trying to mitigate the effects of. I do have a final section. I note I've hit over half an hour. I have a final section um, that I won't go all the way through, but I think is important to briefly touch on before I shut up and let you guys talk. The final section returns to the idea of talking about the state in a settler colony, in a violent settler colony, and acknowledges that when we're talking about this, we have to be deeply reflexive about who we're asking to do what and what we're prepared to put on the line to protect the most structurally marginalised and attacked people in our, in our communities. And it balances this up against understanding that as citizens of core capitalist countries uh, who exist within global chains of labour and nature, we have to do this because otherwise... The global south is going to keep being dumped on and used as a sink and a resource to support low carbon transitions and that's completely unacceptable so my final statement was there are no easy answers and this is not a suggestion that there might be if we just think differently about it but this is a call to take very seriously the tools at our disposal in a fight for a better world and a fight against the impending darkness for better and worse we must navigate the capitalist state thank you Thank you so much, Anna. There's there's so much depth there to what Anna's presented us with. I've had the privilege of uh, reading snippets of Anna's work along the way of her developing this piece, and I'm still, um, yeah, just realising how much there is in there for me to think over. So, um, yeah, thank you, Anna. Uh, it is time for questions. Edwin has raised his hand. Thank you very much. So I'll let Edwin ask that question. And if others have questions, please feel free to post it in the chat if, uh, if you're unable or don't want to uh, voice it, um, or you can raise your hand and then we'll come to you. So Edwin. Thanks, Anna, for that uh, great presentation. And thanks, Blanche. Um, I, in particular, uh, found your description of the role of the state in mediating um, and managing contradiction interesting. But in terms of the responses to climate change that you've been discussing, I think it's very important to be able to communicate the state's role in this, even at the most micro level, uh, to people who, who want to see uh, good consequences for their actions, not, not the uh, unintended sort of consequences they hinted at. And so I'm just curious, like, to, to what extent is this something that we're able to communicate to people in their everyday lives? Or is this sort of something that remains at the level of superstructure? Because there's a lot of um, environmental campaigns that are built around notions of public luxury, around this kind of optimism. And sometimes it's a bit harder to intervene in those conversations um, in a way that's productive by, by putting out these understandings, especially when we're talking about um, new markets that emerge and the optimism that comes with that, like the role of tech in resolving um, climate change issues, for example. So yeah, how would you talk about this? How would you talk about contradiction without talking about contradiction? Or do you think that's a valid question at all? I think that's a great question. Um, I think it's really important, and I know I only hinted at this a couple of times, but I think it's really important to understand that like, we're not talking about 
uh, a voluntary reduction in our existing living standards. We're talking about a transformation of our lives into forms of care and provisioning which allow far more people to have a far better life. And we're doing that for ourselves and for other people. The reality is, if we keep following the logics that we're currently following, if we keep doing this stuff, it's going to become more and more unbearable to live in this world. Um, either because more and more of us are slipping off the backedge of things. You know, I I know that we're very, very privileged, but more and more of us are slipping off from having secure work, from being able to secure a place to live, from being able to access nice green spaces, from being able to eat food and so forth. So it's tying I think the different aspects of the struggle together and making it clear that creating better built infrastructures, creating better cities, better public transport, all of these things go together. They're not separate. You can't, the, the world that we're dreaming of has all of those things and all of us can have those things if a handful of people no longer have billions and billions of dollars. Does that make sense? Yeah, thanks, um, Thank you. We do have a question in the chat from Susanna, so I'll read it out. Thank you, Susanna. Uh, Anna, when we consider the interventions the state, New South Wales, New Zealand or otherwise, has made in response to the COVID pandemic, are there any lessons we can take from this response to what interventions we can expect to the climate crisis? Um. Thank you, Suze. Love your work. Love your question. <laughs> um, I would say something I know I've spoken to probably quite a few people in the room about and something that troubles me massively, and I'm sure everyone, is how quickly people accept heightened militarization of life, which is the weaponization or like the, the ramping up of the repressive functions of the state. And it's something I touched on very briefly and, you know, like the increasing um, policing of protest and just like how overt the violence against, say, First Nations defenders or frontline communities of spaces is. Um, and we're seeing this, you know, the COVID response in Western and Southwest, um, New South Wales, Sydney, demonstrates how easy it is to tap into people's fear to legitimize that. Uh, so there's a lot of work that we need to do there and how it ties to border policy. Um, I think the really um, precarious and vulnerable communities that are going to be harnessed to some of the worst work that has to be done, like in agriculture and so forth, will be the people who are displaced and disempowered as climate change proceeds. So I guess the lesson is to continue building mutual aid and solidarity now sorry if you can hear the beeps outside my house i'm just gonna mute myself <laughs> thanks anna um next we'll have uh allison who's raised their hand and then matt for a question after thank you uh, thank you so much for such a fascinating um uh, insight into your research and thinking it's very inspiring um as a fellow New Zealander, and I preface this realizing in some cultures this is like a rude question, but I was just curious if you're Indigenous or Māori yourself, um, in either way of that question, how that might have impacted with your research. 
just because I'm myself personally with Māori um, waka papa, I find it very interesting to try to figure out for non-Māori or non-Indigenous when we're looking at alternative models, which so much to me resonates with my tipuna. And I just think this is the this is the future. This is the solution that we need. This is the quote unquote alternative to these structures and systems that you've just been discussing. But I'm I have so many question marks about how that works for non-indigenous, non-Maori persons in trying to co-collaborate. And I just was curious how that experience might have been for you. Thank you. That's such a thoughtful and important question. Uh, no, I'm Pakia. Uh, and I think, and this is something that I spent a lot of time thinking about and talking to both Pakia and some Māori scholar friends about how this works. And the, the end that we got to was that in the spirit of treaty partnership, it's very important to hold the structures that have been introduced by my people and ancestors and imposed by my people and ancestors at the expense of Māori people. It's important to demonstrate to my fellow Pākehā why we shouldn't have to do this, but to demonstrate why they're so horrific, why there's no saving them and what we can do to get out of them. How can we be responsible um, for, for doing that? We can't expect First Nations Indigenous people to solve these problems, to be our saviours. In saying that, I think the principle of always bearing in mind that talking about the settler colonial state is very problematic and we need to be talking about decolonization. And I don't think that any future state that we get to, if we're using that word to describe governance frameworks in the future, um, that won't be able to be developed unless it's in the spirit of treaty partnership and like proper treaty partnership. Um, and yeah, big shout out if he is here as well to my friend Matt Scobie, who's taught me so much in my work with him about these things. So thank you, Matt. <laughs> and thank you again, Alison, for your question. I hope that answered it. Yeah, thank you, Anna. Okay, so we'll pass to Matt and then uh, Janet. Thanks, Anna. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that presentation. I think the way that you managed to articulate that theoretical framework was incredibly clear, something that I would aspire to. As you know, I'm grounded in these literatures as well, but I don't know if I could uh, lay them out that clearly. Um, and the, the um, empirical stuff was also super interesting. Um, you mentioned the, the shift to uh, a particular kind of organic agriculture in New Zealand um, and also in passing um, the sustainable agriculture is ultimately, does ultimately have to be part of the solution and that there are various different models for that and arguments around that. Um, I just grabbed a book from the corner of my desk uh, called The Reed Warbler, Charles Massey. Um, you know, in that book, it's very much about, it's a very ideational book. It's about a way of thinking that farmers are brought up thinking about um, it, the soil and the nutrients in the soil in a very kind of mathematical, additive, uh, subtractive kind of way. And that that is a major barrier to getting uh, farmers to act differently. Um, and of, of course, your material analysis would, would point to other problems as well. I guess I was just going to ask what, with the framework that you've developed, 
what material barriers can we explain to Charles Massey exist for uh, family farms, especially to adopt regenerative agricultural practices? Um, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned a few things in passing here, but, you know, about debt, about land ownership, uh, about labour intensity and where that labour regime comes from. And there's the, the global question that you pointed to there. Um, so, yeah, just what are those material barriers to a regenerative type agriculture uh, and, and how do we argue for them? Thanks, Matt. That's very kind. I've heard you describe the ideas I just talked about much better than I just did. So, <laughs> uh, but thank you. Um, this is actually the, the question is something that I'm trying to write an article on at the moment um, because it's very interesting once you delve into the world of agriculture and capitalist agriculture and just the flows of food and value across the world, how on earth you begin to transform those. So I've been looking at the research of, and I'm sure many people will have heard of him, Max Ajil, Al, Al, A-J-L, who is a very fierce uh, advocate for locating agricultural transformation firstly in um, in the peripheral countries that still have ties to their agroecological frameworks um, where capitalism hasn't completely obliterated ways of knowing non-human nature um, in the way that I think definitely in countries like New Zealand. New Zealand's a very weird mix because it's a developed and a developing economy all in one. Um, so you've still got that massive reliance on primary production, but you've lost whatever the traditional farming practices must have been in 16th century Britain um, from the people who've come and transplanted them. So what I'm thinking about at the moment is whether, and again, you can't turn around and ask the indigenous peoples of a country to fix all your problems for you. Um, although you need to have these discussions in the spirit of treaty partnership. Where I'm going at the moment is thinking about how, you know, um, international climate negotiations and so on often talk about knowledge transfer, and it's implied that it'll be like managerial people from the core going to other countries. I think, honestly, it's going to maybe have to be, if possible, the other way around, maybe? <laughs> um, like a reverse flow of knowledge and understanding predicated, obviously, on settling a whole lot of ecological and other debts that exist. Um, but that's where my thinking's at on that one. Hopefully that's not too radical of an answer. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you, Anna. Um, Janet and then uh, Lucas. I see, Lucas, you've got a question in the chat, but hoping you're um, raising your hand to ask that. So, yeah. Okay, Janet. Thanks, Blanche. Thanks, Anna. Um, yeah. I I find what you say about the role of the state very much accords with what um, I have elaborated in research. Um, but uh, there's also there's the twin, the twinning of capital and the state. And I guess um, you know, what you've talked about, uh, the state making the conditions for capital. Um, but uh, given the uh, conditions for the accumulation of value, um, and rather than the production of, of use values or, or meeting what people and, and um, non-human nature need. I'm wondering what prospects you see when, when you were talking at the more strategic level of dealing with the state. Um, uh, what I want to hear a bit more about is um, what prospects you see for forming solidarity against capital 
um, and its control of investment and production and its destruction of the environment. And um, for example, uh, do you see any action um, against the agricultural corporations in New Zealand that are both for improved labour conditions and against that combine improved labour conditions against also um, the destruction of the environment and what is produced and how? And out of that, um, developing action against the state as the state would inevitably side with with the agricultural corporations is that a different way around into dealing with the power of the state by since the state is acting for capital or at least the conditions that capital requires is a is a more advantageous way of dealing with the state to be taking on capital ourselves as a primary target thanks janet i guess what i'm trying to say is and it's definitely, now that I think about it, not going to come across in that talk as well as I would have liked it to. But I want to think about the full set of social relations that we typically divorce into the economic and the political. How do we create an understanding of those social relations that allows us to build material power across them? And for that, I guess, like, yes, I I do think, you know, labour... And that like the primary contradiction between labor and capital is incredibly important, but it's part of a bigger framework of contradiction. It doesn't mean it's not important. Um, for example, in agriculture in New Zealand, that massive importation of labor into um, organic agriculture is going to create the conditions for building material power in that way, right? It's going to create the possibility to organize those people in ways that could disrupt uh, capital themselves. But I think it's useful thinking about how the state literally sets the conditions for appropriation broadly, broadly speaking, because it means we can start tying things together at a slightly more abstract level uh, and hopefully start showing people that all of these debates are two sides of the same coin, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know if I've adequately answered that. But that's my best top of brain in front of people. Maybe we can talk about it more elsewhere. Thanks, Anna. Okay, Lucas, and then uh, I'll read out Bob's question in the chat afterwards, and I think that might be might do us for questions just in terms of time. Uh, hi, Anna. Thanks for your talk. It was really good. Um, I really enjoyed hearing about the um, solidarity part with First Nations around the world and the um, reverse transfer of knowledge. Um, my question to you would be, uh, I think the main problem that we experiencing in Western society is apathy and it's apathy when it comes to refugees, it's apathy when it comes to uh, climate change. How, how do we engage general public? What do you think would be the silver bullet, if there is one, to make people care more? Thank you for that question. I think it goes right to the heart of what I'm what I'm trying to think about and trying to say. Um, I think a lot of the reason that people feel apathetic is because they don't have political power, you know? Like, the political structures have been shown to be pretty much completely unaccountable to us on any number of fronts. And increasingly, we're disempowered in workplaces as well, with the historic weakness of the, um, the labour movement at this point in time. We're increasingly atomised. Our lives are just shockingly difficult to 
get away from in time to build solidarity with groups of people. So what I'm trying to say is thinking about the state differently as like a structuring principle almost gives us a common ground to organize in and against in that access to the things we need to live is mediated primarily through the state. So it's showing people that there is there are paths to affecting change that aren't simply representational democracy, which of course has its merits and shouldn't be entirely abandoned. Um, but there are ways to organize around place-based movements. There are ways to organize communities around shared principles that can be connected in a vertical and a horizontal way. And we need just some really basic first principles to help people organize in that way, I think. Um, and that's where earlier work with um, my colleague Tash Heenan looked at like four principles for a Green New Deal. Is it democratizing, decolonizing, decarbonizing? Um, and I've forgotten what the fourth one was, which is really, really bad. But simple principles that people can orient calls for at the local, regional and national levels that sort of tie all of this together and give people a sense of agency that they might not get otherwise. Feels like I just threw a whole lot of words at you. Um, but <laughs> that's my best top of brain response. I agree. Like the apathy is hard. It's really hard to feel it. And it's hard to acknowledge how disempowered we are a lot of the time. Um, but maybe the first step is thinking about why that is and trying to come up with some different frameworks for action. Okay, decommodification. Thank you, Tash. She put it in the chat. Many thanks. Yeah, thank you, Anna. Um, we've only got about one minute left, so I don't think you'll have time to give uh, Bob's question uh, full uh, response, but see how we go. The question is uh, appreciating the focus on the state, but also what about the role of citizens as, as consumers and citizens as shareholders? What's the potential to modify capitalism rather than remove it? Um, uh, I would say very quickly, sure, but it can't be the primary action and the emphasis on individual action like that can often be very punitive towards low-income communities that don't have the means to do that kind of action. So sure, among those of us privileged enough to be shareholders and so on, I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But I think uh, we need to think about it in terms of that broader socio-ecological transformative vision and program. Um, and obviously we just need to talk about all this stuff more in that context, I think. But thank you, Bob. And thank you, everyone. It's been so lovely to talk with you. Yeah, thanks so much, everyone, for coming and for the fantastic uh, questions. Um, as I mentioned, this is a huge achievement for Anna to have submitted her PhD, especially having done, you know, the last stint of it uh, throughout the pandemic. So my absolute congratulations to you, Anna. And if people feel uh, able to turn on your cameras and give her a big... Um, cheer and clap that would be fantastic so yeah congrats again Anna I've learned so much from this uh, seminar thank you so much for all the fabulous work that you do thanks everyone for coming along today and um, yeah stay well take care and uh, dismantle the state is that right Anna <laughs> give it a go